Good morning, church. It's, uh, there's something, I think, kind of nice about a small gathering. Uh, it's something perhaps we're not used to, but in a world, in a society that's telling us now to focus on every negative thing we can, and perhaps to make everything that we can possibly make negative, negative, to even consider the, the smallness of this room, let's not think of it that way. Let's rather think of it uh, for what it is as a good thing. So that's my encouragement this morning and this week as we go through when the whole world's shouting to us that there is no good news to remember, that there is good news and it's all around us. Well, this morning, as Tim said, we're continuing in our series on Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Last week, Joel looked at um, what is ministry at the end of chapter 1. And today, we're going to be looking at um, a very similar topic. So a lot of it's going to be kind of recap from last week and kind of a uh, 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 building on what was said, and next week will be much of the same. But this morning, we're going to look at ministry goals. You know, what is it that our sights should be set upon? What, should, what business should we in the kingdom be about? And I think Paul gives us a very good picture of what our ministry goals should be in Colossians chapter 2. Now, this morning, I'm going to be rather brief because I feel that some subjects like what we're going to tackle today, sometimes too many words can muddy the water. So in an effort to prevent that from happening, this morning we're going to be very brief, very direct, and to the point. Uh, I understand that much of what I'm going to say is something that we are all very familiar with, but I think it's very important that we hear it again and again. So let's look in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, verse 1, Paul says... I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. Before we go any further, let's take a minute and let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God that has equipped us for ministry, Lord. We thank you that you're a God who works in us and through us and have not left us to our own selves. But God, that you are living and active, that you are powerful, and it is you, Lord, that completes and accomplishes that which you set out to complete and accomplish. Help us to rest, Lord, and take comfort in your word and the strength that's found in it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Joel looked last week at what is ministry, and I want to just kind of, uh, you know, kind of give a brief overview. If I were to, define, were to define ministry, I would define it as a supernatural calling and a responsibility of all of those who, having placed their trust in Christ, are now his followers. You see, ministry is not only the work of those who are privileged to do it full time. Ministry is kingdom work carried out by the church as a whole. 
Also, ministry is not so much something we do. We'd love that, right, to be able to check off our little boxes and say that we've accomplished this, accomplished that. But ministry isn't so much that as it is something that the Christ follower is. Ministry is a natural outpouring of that which Jesus is doing in our hearts and in our lives. So ministry is the work of the kingdom carried out by the children of the kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice when we think in the context of ministry, in these uh, few verses, we see two things kind of bubble up to the surface that Paul seems concerned about. Notice his goals for the church. It's expressed by two words. He wants to see love and truth. Notice verse 2. He says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love, and I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, that's the truth, which is Christ himself. So you have these two things, two things that Paul says in uh, verse 1 that he's agonizing over. He wants to know that they are knit together in love and that they have complete confidence in Jesus Christ. So we've got these two things that Paul's concerned about. Two things that he considers is his ministry, and by extension, the ministry of the church as well. Love and confidence in the truth. You see, to the follower of Jesus who is engaged in ministry, so that should be all of us, to us in the church, our ministry should boil down to these two things. Love is our motivation, and truth is our mission. We are to be knit together by strong ties of love. This is an essential ministry goal and one that we cannot miss. It must be in place. But we have to ask ourselves the question, I mean, what is love? How do we define love? I saw something the other day that said, because we all get theology wrong, we better make sure our love is in place. How do you define love in the absence of God, in the absence of theology? We can't. We must have proper theology if we are to truly understand what love is. But it does sound kind of silly to ask the question, what is love? Because we think we know the answer. But think about it for a minute. Think of the different ways even we as English speakers use this term. With the same word, I will say that I love my wife and that I love pizza. I will say that I love my kids and I love my job. Now, I think intuitively we know that there is a difference sometimes. But sometimes I think it kind of confuses us. We do understand that there's a difference between loving an object and loving a human being, but sometimes we still come very short of understanding what love truly means. What is real love? What is biblical love? The word that Paul uses in the text is one that's familiar in a lot of Christian circles. It's this term agape, which is a, uh, a selfless love. You see, if we're going to be knit together, if we're going to be bound together by something, that something must be something strong. And I want to suggest that often our current cultural ideas concerning love are insufficient. It is not something that will knit us together. In fact, it could cause us rather to unravel. So love to us today is often nothing more than a feeling, a feeling that can be gained or lost. And because it can be lost, there is no knitting together, if that's our definition of love. Love is love in our culture when and only when it works for me. There is no commitment 
It's just a feeling. Or we'll define it this way. Our culture has bought into the idea that love is love only insofar as it accepts everything someone does regardless of how damaging it may be to them. This is not biblical love. This is not love. I don't know what it is, but it's not that. It's not love. Biblical love is a commitment to put someone ahead of yourself. Feelings may be present. They may be absent. It doesn't matter. It's a commitment to seeing someone else's best interest, even if showing them will hurt. Biblical love is a humble love, and it is a commitment to the truth, no matter how hard or how easy that may be. Paul will describe it a little more detail in chapter 3. But for this morning, let's go back to chapter 1 just to get a, a little bit better idea of this source of love that we have. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 3, Paul says, We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. You see, love was something that came from outside of a person. It was put there by God or the expectation of what God is doing. This is biblical love, and it must be our first ministry goal. So love is our motivation. Truth is our mission. We are knit together in love so that we may carry out our great mission. That mission is to expose ourselves, us, those who've already received the message, to expose ourselves and to expose the world to the truth. Paul's ministry goal is simple. He wants to see them growing in love and to have a complete confidence that they, that we, that you and me, that we understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. Think about what a statement that is for a minute. Think about what is being said here. God's plan, his mysterious plan, is a person. It is Jesus Christ. It is not a set of rules to be followed. It is not some system to adhere to. It is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Love being our motivation, truth is our mission, and that truth is Jesus Christ. He is not just part of the mission or just a part of the plan. He is the whole thing. Paul goes on to say that in him, in Jesus, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the truth. He is ultimate reality. In him, we can make sense of everything, and without him, everything begins to unravel. So, if love is our motivation and truth is our mission, the most loving thing that any human can do for another is to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. This must be our ministry goal. So that's our mission, Jesus. That's it. That's what we're to be about. But what does that even mean? It's not hard to find people with a wrong view of Jesus today. You know, I often point out to people that I'm not sure if... Christianity should be defined as a world religion. 
Because normally when you're looking at defining a world religion, they have as a fundamental aspect of their, their beliefs this adherence to a set of rules, a set of regulations, a set of practices that's to be done if you're going to be reconciled to God. If you want to be reconciled to God, you must do X, Y, and Z. Do, 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 and then do some more, and then maybe God will receive you. Um, but that's not the case with Jesus. See, with Jesus, it's not do, 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 and do some more. Rather, with Jesus, what we see is that it's done. His own words as he's dying on the cross proclaim this when he says, It is finished. The doing has, been, has taken place. It is now done. This is the gospel, and this must be the heart of our ministry. Whatever we do, whatever we attach the title ministry to, it should be nothing more than a vehicle that leads to Jesus, a vehicle that leads to this gospel. So what, what is the gospel? We hear that word a lot. And please don't, don't take this simple message that I've got as an insult to, uh, to anyone's intelligence. I understand that there are probably most of you in this room are very familiar with what I'm about to say. But I do not think that we can overexpose ourselves to this because this must be our primary ministry goal. So what is the gospel? Well, here it is. The gospel is good news, right? That's what the word literally means. It means good news. Simple enough, but good news of what? It's the good news that God is good. You know, we sometimes like to leave it there. That's a comfortable spot that uh, if we leave it there, we'll receive little rejection from a non-believer. God is good. And that's a true enough statement. God is good. But if that is all there is to the gospel, then it is not good news at all. You see, the fact that God is good is a fact that should terrify us. It is perhaps the most terrifying statement that a human being can ever hear. Now, we don't like to think of it that way. We like to think, because we're arrogant, because we're puffed up with pride, because we are self-centered, uh, we assume that God being good is a good thing because we think that we ourselves are good. God is good and I'm pretty okay. I can probably make up for any wrong that I've done. But that is one of the biggest lies peddled today. It is the lie of almost every false religion out there. It is the lie of the non-believer alike. You see, God's goodness means that you and I, we justly deserve hell. We have hell to pay because of our sin. Because he is good, he must be just. Because he is just, he must not, he cannot overlook our sin. You see, we're not good. We like to think that we are, or we like to think that perhaps God grades on a curve. As long as I'm not as bad as Hitler, then I should be okay. But here's a little test that I've stolen uh, from an evangelist that I listen to sometimes. This is something good and practical uh, actually, that you can use in trying to take this message out. But this is just a little test to determine, according to God's standard, whether we can say that we're good or not. It's pulled straight from the Ten Commandments, and I only look at four questions. But ask yourself this Have you ever stolen anything? Doesn't matter how big, how small. Time from your family, time from your employer, it doesn't matter. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever lusted after someone to whom you're not married to? Have you ever used God's name in vain? 
I think if we're honest, we must confess that in this room, every one of us are lying thieves, adulterers at heart, and we're blasphemers. And we just looked at four out of the ten, of the ten that God sets up as his standard of righteousness and holiness. You see, we're not good, not based off of God's standards of goodness, but he is good. And contrary to what some CNN commentators may say, he is, in fact, perfect. And as such... He must judge our sin, and the penalty for that sin is rightly hell. It's eternal separation from him. That's not good news. I mean, not to me, not if it stops right there. I'm a sinner standing condemned in front of a holy God. That doesn't sound like good news. But here is the mysterious plan that Paul mentions in verse 2. It's this. It's that you and me... You, wicked, sinful, wretched you who will disobey God at every chance that you're given, you, despite that sin, can be reconciled to God. You say God is good, he is just, but because of Christ, he is also able to be merciful and to kind, and he loves those who are are his. Here is where we see that our ministry goal is all about Jesus. Here is the gospel. Listen to Paul's words in the first creed of the early church. This is a uh, passage of scripture I would uh, suggest that you, uh, that you commit to memory because if you want to know what the early church believed, what they said even before the New Testament was written down, it's right here. This is what they said. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It is this message that because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can repent from our sinful ways. We can turn to Christ and we can trust in his completed work on the cross on our behalf. We can trust that it is all of him and none of me. We can trust that it was finished when he said it is finished. And when we trust that, we can also trust that it is done. It is complete. This is our mission. This is our ministry goal. And if you think for a minute that this is not needed, I challenge you later this week to go out and find someone who admits to being an unbeliever and someone who perhaps would admit to being a believer and ask them this simple question. Ask them, if God were to ask you today, why should I let you into heaven, what would your response be? It will grieve you the number of people who profess to be believers who will say it is somehow a mixture of works and what Jesus has done. This is part of the deception that the Apostle Paul goes on to warn them about. Paul goes on and tells them why this message is important when he says, I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Now, I want you to understand, 
what Paul is saying here. He is not saying that we should check our brains at the door, that we should avoid arguments against the faith because they might somehow pollute our mind. He is not saying that we should just take a blind step in the dark as our act of faith, which biblical faith is never defined that way anyway. It is not a check your brain at the door statement. It is a keep a guard over your heart statement. What Paul is saying is what Solomon recognized a thousand years prior in Proverbs 14, 12, when he says, there is a way that seems right to a man. So that means it's going to appeal to us. We're going to like the way it sounds, but its end is the way to death. And the band can come on up. You see, when it comes to the gospel, the temptation because the lie that all of humanity is, has bought into is that we are enough, we can do it ourselves. The temptation to add to it is great. When it comes to sharing the gospel, Paul recognizes that the same temptation exists. To man, it must be God plus something. There are plenty of arguments that would push the gospel plus theology, Jesus plus something else. Just as the gospel often seems too simple to the non-believer, the effectiveness of the gospel message is often doubted by the believer. You know, sure, we believe that salvation comes by grace through faith, but the message itself, we think, cannot be enough. We need to add a few things to it so that our culture and our society will buy into it. You see, when we do that, we are taking upon ourselves a burden that we cannot bear and we have not been asked to bear. We have been given the responsibility to share the gospel, not the gospel and. We say, if society is going to listen to the words I speak about the gospel, then it needs to be the gospel and. And what? The gospel and of the generations uh, behind us, the gospel and legalism. We'll set up this nice set of rules, make it easy for everybody to understand what it means to be a Christian. So it'll be the gospel and legalism. Today, maybe it would be the gospel and political activism. We must get culture steered in the right direction if they're ever going to hear the gospel. So before we even fool with the gospel, we're going to spend our time and our attention on political activism. What's the gospel and mysticism? If people are going to hear the gospel, they need to first have a special encounter with God. It's not the simple message that's enough. We've got to add a level of mysticism to it. Or it's the gospel and social justice. If people are going to hear the gospel, they need to know that the church is on the right side of history or whatever issue that our society is currently fascinated with. That is a burden that we cannot bear. It is a weight that we have not been asked to carry. And it will crush us. It will crush us. But we've not been called to take up those things. We have been called to take out the gospel. Unfortunately, when we become centered on those things and others that could be named, our ministry goal becomes those things and the gospel fades into the background to never be spoken and to be lost. And then we just become a bunch of nice, legalistic, politically active, mystical, social justice warriors with no message at all, no hope, no chance of seeing men's hearts changed. So Paul's hope was twofold. He wanted the church to be knit together with strong ties of love and to be secure in their knowledge of Christ. What Paul wrote to the Colossian church applies to us today as much as it did then when it was written. Our motivation and our mission have never and will never change. 
the mysteries of God can be known. It is Christ. It is now our goal to take this message to the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your plan, Lord, was accomplished for us. Thank you that your yoke is easy and your burdens light. Thank you for the gospel message that you have given us to take the world. Lord, it transforms us and it can transform them. Help us to rest in the power, Lord, of your gospel and to make that our ministry goals. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.